Hello, everybody. I'm Peter Giuliano, and you're listening to the RICO Podcast, a special episode of the SCA Podcast. The RICO Podcast is dedicated to new thinking, discussion, and leadership in specialty coffee, featuring talks, discussions, and interviews from RICO Symposium, SCA's premier event dedicated to amplifying the voices of those who are driving specialty coffee forward. Check out the show notes for links to our YouTube channel where you can find videos of these talks. This episode of the Rico Podcast is supported by Toddy. For over 50 years, Toddy brand cold brew systems have delighted baristas, food critics, and regular folks alike. By extracting all the natural, delicious flavors of coffee and tea, Toddy cold brew systems turn your favorite coffee beans and tea leaves into fresh cold brew concentrates that are ready to serve and enjoy. Learn more about Toddy at toddycafe.com. Toddy, cold brewed, simply better. Okay, let's get started with this week's episode. On this episode of the RICO Podcast, we are pleased to welcome Kalina Nunu, Director of Coffee Supply Chain at Fairtrade USA and member of the SCA Board of Directors. How's it going, Colleen? It's going great, Peter. Um, so over the next three weeks, we will be releasing episodes from the Changing Tide session at RICO, this symposium this year, which uh, you led, and you'll be taking over the RICO podcast for those sessions, interviewing some of the speakers and talking about the discussions that took place at the event around this session. So today, we're going to listen to your opening speech and the first panel. So um, I thought it would be nice to, to sort of explore how we got to this um, session uh, in the first place. So in general, we talk, um, we talk to members of the RICO community and especially coffee community. And this year, equity, diversity, inclusion as a topic started to really come up for us. Um, uh, isn't, that, isn't that sort of how it happened? Yeah. I mean, so I think that, uh, that the you and some of the other um, RICO event managers and content managers usually reach out to people and ask them for, uh, for the hot topics or uh, the, the, the kind of uh, the kind of lectures and talks that they would like to see us address. And um, yeah, this, this really emerged, um, but it didn't, it didn't, it more emerged, I think more in the, uh, the kind of social media space than it did in any of the actual conversations that I was having with people. Um, because for, for one thing, I think most of the conversations, the, intentional conversations that we have on kind of a business front um, don't involve the same people that we have on the social media sphere. Um, and so that it was kind of one of these eye-opening moments for me of, well, are, are we talking, are we always talking to the right people um, and how, uh, you know, how priorities change um, depending on in yeah. what context you're talking. To yeah. I, I mean, I noticed that too, for sure, that a lot of these conversations started in the social media sphere, but I did notice as as we as we worked on this and as you led this um, as we went forward, it it started to be come up in conversations among the let's say the uh, the uh, coffee leadership community or the people people that generally kind of lead companies who are often somewhat older, often male, um, uh, often white, uh, uh, and aren't traditionally. Um, let's say looped into these conversations, but started to become more aware and more interested in these conversations right as we, in the weeks and months leading up to Rico. Yes, absolutely. Um, I wonder how, so part of your job was to 
reach out to people that would be participating on this uh, on this panel and be speakers and stuff? How did you how did you uh, go through that process? Yeah. So, I mean, I think I had a conversation with you and sometime in January, which for planning purposes is is a little bit uh, a little bit late for I think what you normally will, will, uh, your timeline, you know, it's a little late in the timeline for what you would normally use or look at milestones for accomplishing, you know, the content and the speakers and all of that. So there was a little bit of a push, um, uh, to, to like, let's, all right, let's put this together. Let's figure it out. And let's actually figure out what the message is going to be because the topic of, uh, marginalized communities and equity, diversity, and inclusion is just so loaded. And, um, it's such an onion as you as you peel back all of the layers that um, that it was really hard to hone in on exactly what the what the topic was going to be, um, how we were going to approach it, how inclusive could we be to make this a whole broad discussion about um, you know uh, the the front and the back end of the value chain, basically, um, and how, yeah, how we were going to include producer voices, but how are we going to also include um, barista and retail voices, and then talk about sort of the the broader stuff that's happening in in kind of the social and political environments in in countries around the world. So it was a it was not an easy <laughs> it wasn't an easy topic to define uh, what like you know what the overall goal or objectives of this talk. Uh, these talks were going to be, um, and then finding the the right speakers too um, was something that we we really spent a lot of time thinking about. Yeah, and that's why the format of this session was so different from the other format. Right, right. There's a lot more voices. I mean, the time is constrained, right? And there's a you know, it's such a huge topic, and there's so many potential voices that you'd like to that we'd like to include, but. Um, given the constraints of time, it winds up, you wind up having to concentrate the conversation, but we did wind up doing two panel conversations in this, um, uh, punctuated with a talk in between, um, which, which enabled us to include more voices than we normally would in the same, same time space. Right. Yeah, I know. I think that the second panel had something like seven or eight yeah. people on, <laughs> which is not, that is not like normal for a, like a norm. It's not, it's not ideal, but, uh, but yeah, we made it work by putting a couple of the people in the later panel on the first one and really getting to know them. Um, but yeah, I would say with the other sessions, the format of having two major talks in a panel um, associated with it, just it just wasn't going to work for us. Uh, not because we didn't think that we could have a, a couple of, of really solid 20 minute talks, but, but I really thought that it was much more of a conversation because it was supposed to be about how do we have conversations? So, um, so really framing it as a conversation about conversations is, was kind of the idea there. Yeah, totally. (laughs) A little meta. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I, I've shared with you before, I, I, uh, I, I went into the audience for this session. I, I, I sat in the audience. Which usually, I walk, watch talks and things from backstage, but for this one, I wanted to be in the audience. And um, and I note and I looked around me, and what I saw was a bunch of those coffee, um, you know, the traditional leadership class in, in our industry uh, uh, that uh, I mentioned before. Lots of them were doing something that I don't often see at Rico, which is taking notes, you know. And I think uh, uh, in their notebook, you know, and I think. Um, what I heard later was that there was a lot of new terminology being introduced here, 
a lot of new concepts that we don't often get to see in, let's say, a, a, a conference like this. Mm-hmm. And and it seems to me that you all really achieved that. You you mm-hmm. uh, you you brought a whole different set of conversations yep. um, to uh, to an environment. And mm-hmm. I think I I recognized that it seemed like there was a lot of gratitude and recognition of like, okay, great, we can talk about this now. And so I think, I think, I think that was good. That's great. Um, Yeah. So that was definitely by design. Um, Not only did we want to just generally speak, uh, speak what our experiences are, our real lived experiences are, and have it sort of be disseminated a broadcast to a, a wider audience, but through this podcast and through, you know, the, the release of the videos and everything like that. But we also knew the standard sort of demographic of uh, RICO participants and attendees. And it was very much by design um, from the beginning, working very closely with Matt Slater, very work, working very closely with Michelle Johnson um, and, uh, and Phyllis as well. Um, uh, to or sorry, Phyllis Johnson. Sorry, I should say her name. Um, to 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 really address this question of how do you solve for power inequity when the people in power are the ones making decisions? So we really wanted to reach that audience right. and and alert them that you know there are new rules of engagement. Um, we talked about whether or not there should be some sort of operating guidelines for. Um, for a diverse, inclusive workforce, maybe, or just general ways of operating your own business, um, and letting them know that you know the the house really is on fire in many many instances, and if it's if it's not now, it it would be in the future, right? So it only take a slip, um, an unintentioned slip, because you don't have the right processes or procedures in place, um, and just and kind of calling out from the experience of all of these different companies that have been experience, experiencing this in the past couple of years, um, and, and definitely more have in the past. I'm not, I'm not trying to, um, I guess, <laughs> negate the experiences of those that, that have not had these stories come into the social media space or have been reported on. Um, but it's just like all of these, all of these issues are now given a new, set of like, I don't know, it's just like weighted differently and, and more, more gravity attached to it Yeah, that, um, just letting them know, just kind of putting, putting everybody on notice that this can happen to you. It happened to SEA. We luckily were able to listen to our membership. It was really important to us. And, and we were able to, um, to make decisions that, that, that helped to, um, to improve our processes overall. Yeah. Why don't we, uh, go ahead and listen to the episode then. Um, so we'll start with a talk, um, by you and then it'll move into a a panel. So, um, let's listen to today's episode. So here's Colleen Anunu opening the panel featuring, um, Isabella Pascal Becker, Kimberly Eason, Doug Hewitt, and Jen Chen at Rico Symposium 2008. Colleen, thanks a lot for joining us. You're welcome. So Changing Tides is the title that we've chosen um, for the conversation on building equity, diversity, and inclusion into the coffee industry and in coffee communities and coffee businesses. 
um, because I really wanted to locate us within current movements. Um, and that's a pun as well. Um, but, you know, in the time of Black Lives Matter, uh, when we see over and over again how coffee spaces, cafes, and the coffee industry exclude people of color, um, and I'm not just talking about the events that happened in Philadelphia this past weekend, this is a coffee problem. It's not one single business's problem. Coffee cafes are seen generally as the first wave of gentrification into predominantly low-income and um, uh, and black or people of color communities. Um, so, you know, that, that situates coffee within that current movement. And in the time of um, legislation, which is prohibiting individuals from access to public restrooms because they don't identify as the gender um, that they were assigned at birth, the SCA comes under fire from its LGBTQ members and allies because of gaps in policies and procedures that led to discrimination and exclusion from events. And in a time of Me Too and Time's Up, a prominent third-wave coffee roaster in San Francisco um, settled a high-profile lawsuit uh, for sexual harassment and sexual assault. And in this case, they actually changed their name to The Tide before changing it back to Four Barrel. So, thinking about the tides, and thinking about how these current movements are going to continually pull us like gravity um, and how we need to navigate them in order for the rising tide to lift all ships. That's what this conversation is about. It's also kind of a, a differentiates us from this concept of waves and um, to borrow from my good friend Trish, um, we've done that already. We've completed the third wave. Um, and she, at a recent coffee event, congratulated us all because we've done it. Uh, we have focused on individual experience, um, individual choice. Um, we have uh, focused on conscious consumerism with quality and authenticity as uh, drivers to, um, to offset structural inequalities throughout the world. And we're the first to pat ourselves on the back for that in many instances. Um, but what we need to consider is how many people we're leaving out of that conversation for um, identifying like, what the coffee industry is and what our objectives are, what are our goals, and what are our tactics. And so, you know, if you think about people of color, if you think about women, um, gender non-conforming folks, trans folks, people that can't speak English, even people that speak English as a second language, um, these are individuals that have lived experience, that have things to uh, contribute to the conversation of, of what it means to succeed uh, in the coffee industry and what it means to be a leader in the coffee industry. And they have historically and predominantly been excluded from that conversation. So tides and the change of the tides really uh, in this situation is one about uh, dominant power structures. Right? And we've heard that a lot throughout the morning, that um, you know, the, what's happening right now and, and where, we, where we see a lot of the um, grassroots movements in, in the coffee culture, especially in America, um, and predominantly in America, um, is focused around uh, changing these dominant power structures so that voices and perspectives can be included. And you can listen to a recording from the 2017 lecture at SCA um, which I believe was even called Changing Power Structures or Changing Power Dynamics in the Coffee Industry, where the seven people on that panel, um, six of whom are actually presenting over the course, well, this morning and then uh, throughout tomorrow, um, 
you know, because they have great perspectives, uh, they are the first to tell you that if you haven't seen these concepts manifest in the periphery of your business or in the broader coffee industry, um, then you're not paying attention. And if you're not paying attention, there's really no option anymore. You must pay attention to the conversations that are happening uh, in the margin. So, you know, that's sort of the question for all of us here is how do we do that? Right? What tools do we need? Um, how can we survive? How can we analyze um, our gaps, uh, the gaps in, uh, in our policies and our procedures that foster discrimination? How do we support marginalized voices in a way that, um, that, that values them and that allows people to contribute to conversations that shape the future of our industry? And so that's what this session is supposed to do. And so there's me as a little coffee bean uh, in a boat. And um, that coffee bean is um, anyone that feels lost and feels like they're drowning in this conversation. So um, the first thing that I want to do uh, to set us up for the rest of the session is to talk a little bit about marginalization. And um, the dominant, you know, the, the, the definition that I'm going to use is uh, marginalization is the process of pushing a particular group or groups of people to the edge of society or an organization or a coffee industry by not allowing them an active voice, identity, or place within it. And when we talked about this concept on the call with uh, the panelists last week, Isabella from Brazil said, you know, I had to look up this concept I had to look at a definition in Portuguese, and um, it's a very harsh and it's a very violent definition. We use this for people that are criminals in our society and people that we don't, um, that we don't value. And me, as someone that's a white person, you know, I was like, you know, I don't think, it, maybe in my head I was like, I don't think it's that harsh because I'm super desensitized to this. You know, this is stuff that I've studied for many years. Um, but Tamika, a black woman that's living in uh, New York City and is an immigrant to the United States from Belize, she said, no, you're absolutely right, Isabella. This is very violent. It's a very chaotic process. And it's one that, um, you know, in many cases is a matter of life or death for some people. So we have to think about marginalization much more in terms of space. Um, and it's, it's both physical and mental space where uh, your kind of the culture of an organization or the culture of an industry um, is really seen, uh, you, you look at sort of what is normal, uh, what you define as normal about your culture. And those people that identify with those concepts of what is normal within a culture um, reinforce that, those conceptions through procedures and laws and institutions um, policies, uh, social networks a lot of times, and support. Um, and those that do not identify with uh, those concepts of normal are pushed off to the side. Right? And so the people that are kind of without, outside of that sphere, um, they have to think about their proximity to what is normal. So in the United States, uh, it's predominantly, you know, what's normal is considered uh, white, um, male, if you were born uh, male or assigned male at your birth, um, and heterosexual. Let's just throw some of those out there for you, right? So those that don't identify as heteronormative or, um, or cisgendered male um, or, or white, uh, you know, they, they always have to think about their, their actions uh, within that sort of proximity to what is normal. 
And so what we see in coffee right now is that there are a number of grassroots organizations and whisper networks that are focusing on each other, that are amplifying their voice, uh, that are finding pathways to, uh, to offset or to upset the dominant power structures in coffee right now. And this is just a, a handful of examples. And you know, what's cool about this is there are a number of people um, that founded these uh, grassroots networks that are actually in the room today. So diversity consultants, um, if you hire one for your organization, um, they'll probably start with an exploration of uh, what is unconscious bias. And you might see in the news that um, Starbucks just announced that they are uh, going to close a number of stores for uh, racial bias training or unconscious bias training. Um, and that is uh, typically the, the sort of assumptions or attitudes that you hold um, that are that you know when you make decisions uh, you make decisions based on those right and it's a lot of times unconscious and it's a lot of times unfounded and the way that you you have to start considering um, you know an exploration of what your unconscious bias is and a really interesting thought experiment um, that that Phyllis Johnson posed last year on that panel that I told you about um, was if you had a handful of marbles and they were all different sorts of colors and you drop them on the floor. It would be statistically improbable for all of the green ones to segregate into the corner of the room. So, you know, you have to think about this and think about, well, in, in all of the years of the World Barista Championships, why has there never been a female-identified uh, winner, champion, right? You have to think about, you know, on a 20-person board of a 10,000-member association, why is 70% of that male? Why is 85% of that white? Why is 90% of that heteronormative? Right? We have to explore that. I'm not trying to drag anybody, but I'm trying to say that you know, we have to invite the self-reflection and self-criticism in order to change the institutions that are reinforcing these things. So a couple of other concepts that you'll hear throughout the rest of this session um, that I just want to set us up for, because I, I want to focus on the message and not necessarily uh, the, uh, the, the concepts. Um, we'll start with privilege. Um, it's a very triggering term, I know, for many people. But if you think about that, that illustration that was before about uh, proximity to normal, um, privilege is essentially the advantages that you have because of that, right? So as a white woman, pretty much, it's not anything that I do um, necessarily, it's just kind of the way, that I, the, the, the way that I exist. I can just show up and breathe and benefit from being in a predominantly white space. Um, intersectionality is uh, multidimensional and overlapping discrimination. So, um, using myself as an example, right? So, uh, I am a woman. You know, there's there's a certain amount of discrimination that's already against me, but I'm a queer woman, um, and so in a predominantly heteronormative space, I constantly have to think about how I present myself um, and the things that I say because I'm different. Right? I'm constantly thinking about how I'm different, how I'm perceived differently, and how do I change or code switch so that I can show up in a way that um, you know, my message is the thing that's listened to and valued, um, and people aren't just questioning my experience or questioning who I am as an individual. Um, another story about this is uh, after the Women's March in 2017 in DC, a, f a white male friend of mine was flipping through my uh, Instagram feed, and he said, why are there Black Lives Matter protesters at the Women's March? 
And I said, I was like, well, because, you know, the experiences of black women in America are not the same as white women in America. Right? It's the same, it's why we don't stop at this concept of seven cents on a dollar for wage inequality, because that's very much uh, a white reality. It's not the reality of a black woman, it's not the reality of an Asian American woman, it's not the, you know, for a Latina or an immigrant. So we have to think about these overlapping forms of discrimination, because everyone is different and everyone has uh, different barriers to success. Um, emotional labor. Um, so thinking about how I need to position myself with, within that normative space, um, that's extremely taxing, right? And I already said that I have to think about that all the time and how I show up and how I present myself, right? So I call this, uh, you know, you could call it taxing, but I call it overextracted by the ignorance of, like, actually considering me as an individual and a human that has something to, uh, to you know, to, uh, to contribute. Um, but also under-extracted, right? So uh, I think Michelle said last year on that panel um, that, you know, imagine the sort of innovation that would happen in this space if I could just show up and contribute and that I didn't have to, um, I didn't have to justify my existence, basically, or justify my resume. Um, microaggressions is another term that you'll hear, um, and it's, it's just kind of a, a reminder that you are different, right? So it's, it's a, a gender nonconforming person in your workspace, and you uh, address them in a group of people as guys. Or you um, are a white person, and you're code switching to African-American vernacular English uh, when you're around uh, you know, your, your black friends. You know, it's these sort of things that, um, that actually remind those individuals of their difference. So uh, now we're going to switch to a panel where we're going to discuss um, inclusive businesses. And then Michelle Johnson is going to give a talk on um, some of the, uh, some of the, the uh, policies that she's enacted uh, with the support of her teammates at Barista Hustle uh, for more inclusive conversations. And then we're going to finish with a, a, a panel on um, how to have uncomfortable conversations and how to position ourselves in it. So for the rest of the session, it'd be great to think about, uh, think about entering into this space. Um, you are supposed to be uncomfortable. You're supposed to examine your, uh, your identities and, and your benefits. Um, so here's, here's a little primer on how to engage in uncomfortable conversations. Um, and it's this little acronym, CLAIM. Um, so center yourself and think about your privilege. Think about uh, where you exist in that proximity to normal. Uh, listen to the experiences, the actual lived experiences and perspectives of the people and, and value what they're telling you. Um, acknowledge, uh, acknowledge their contribution. Um, these people, they have lives and, and they have other experience that they would probably love to talk to you about and their expertise, but they're here to, to, to give us all a primer on, uh, on privilege and, and on uncomfortable conversations and on marginality. So uh, acknowledge that this is, this is a really great uh, emotional work that they're doing. Um, inquire if you have the consent of, of these individuals or anyone else that you think wants to engage in this type of conversation um, tomorrow or, or in the coffee breaks, um, ask them. But value their uh, value and make sure that you have the, their consent. And finally, move forward. And the best way to move forward is changed behavior. So, with that, we are going to call up our first panel. So we have Kimberly Eason, who's the Strategic Director of the Partnership for Gender Equity. 
Doug Hewitt, who is the co-founder of 1951 Coffee in um, Berkeley, California. Jen Chen, who is a coffee marketer, a writer, and a photographer out of San Francisco, California. And Isabella Pasquale, who is the sustainability and impact manager of the Terra Farms. Hi, welcome. Hello. I hope you're enjoying this SCA podcast. My name's James Harper, and I help the SCA produce them. There are times during these talks where you really need to see what's going on to avoid getting lost. So, I will come in occasionally to act as your eyes and explain what you can't see. Okay, back to the podcast. Thanks for joining. So I would really love to hear from each of you um, about your business goals and the values that you hold as, as a business. Um, and then also, uh, you know, why, why did you build a business that prioritizes um, the inclusion of marginalized communities? So we'll start with you, Kimberly. Great. Thanks, Colleen. Uh, the Partnership for Gender Equity, uh, we believe strongly that gender equity is the foundation for sustainability in the supply chain. And so when we talk about marginalized communities, we're talking about women, youth, uh, and, and essentially coffee farming families, workers, all of those people who, as Colleen mentioned in the introduction, really don't have a voice uh, and, and frequently are left out of conversations. We uh, focus on origin, in particular, small farmer households and producer organizations, but also recognize that the, the issue resonates throughout uh, the whole coffee value chain. Many of us are trained in this sector to think about a coffee farmer as an individual, a male, and not necessarily think about who are those other people in the, in the household. And um, all of those people have different uh, concerns, different aspirations, and different skills, and different talents, and different ways of interacting around coffee and, and their lives. And as an industry, we can be much more successful in addressing some of the challenges that we've been looking at during the day um, by taking into account all of those different needs and perspectives and, and, and opportunities just to build a much stronger supply chain. So uh, we're working with a research focus and really working to bring a cross-industry collaboration to try to elevate the issue uh, um, so that we can have a transformative impact on the sector that doesn't necessarily take generations to take root, right? That we can actually try to have an impact in a much shorter amount of time that we can actually see uh, as we work together towards a better, a better future for the sector. Uh, so This is Doug Hewitt. 1951 uh, Coffee Company derives its name from the year 1951, uh, when the United Nations first kind of came together uh, to define the term refugee um, and to set out the protections and the legal rights that refugees should have as they flee their home countries. Um, as a coffee company, we train refugees to be baristas um, when they first arrive in the United States, and we help uh, find placements for them in the coffee industry, primarily in the, in the Bay Area, but also in San Diego right now. Um, we have our own cafe where um, we employ 10 people right now. Um, and part of the reason that we, that we do what we do, um, Rachel Tabor, the other co-founder, and I both used to work at the International Rescue Committee, one of the, the leading uh, refugee resettlement organizations uh, here in the United States. And 
Our experience working、um, with people who were new to the country. I, I was working in helping refugees find jobs at that time, and I would sit across the desk from someone who had just arrived in the country the day before or a few days before, and I would be interviewing them to, to help develop a, a resume to begin the process of helping them find a job. And I would hear their stories, and I would hear about the skills and the, the things that they had been through, you know, in, in their lives before war or persecution kind of erupted and forced them to flee. Um, hearing their experiences coming to to the United States, and then I would work with them on the process of applying for a job, going to a job interview, and over and over again, was just met with the frustration of people who, you know, they're qualified.、Um, I would sit there and I would talk with them very often in, in in English and would understand everything that they were talking about and explaining to me, and would go to interview after interview and hear employers say, "Oh, they they don't speak English. Oh, they you know they're they're not qualified in this way." Sometimes. Oh, they're overqualified,、um, and we, you know this is a position that that we really want to offer to them. And so I think that Rachel and I both had that experience of constantly coming back from those those kind of meetings、um, and just saying, you know, we wish there was an employer out there who would get it, an employer who would say, you know what, I'm going to open up opportunities, I'm going to make this work.、Um, and so we kind of founded 1951 out of a desire to become one of those employers. The next person to speak is Jen Chen. Uh, so I work in a few different disciplines.、Um, I handle marketing for Akaya, the scale company,、um, and I'm also a writer and a photographer for a few different companies.、Um, for Akaya, most people know me、um, as the online voice, so social media,、um, product launches,、uh, sponsorship programs, and things like that. And the values that Akaya holds are、um, there are three of them. One's collaboration, so that's A pretty big theme that's been going around all day today.、Uh, that's working with a lot of different companies to further the industry.、Uh, there's also community, which is a huge one for us, and that's giving back into the professional community. And that doesn't mean、um, just supporting these kinds of events. It also means the grassroots organizations that are all around,、um, not just the U.S. but also the world.、Um, and then、uh, quality is the last one, and that's quality products, quality customer service, and Uh, what I wanted to talk about today, which we can go on into later,、um, is that it's really important for me to be able to impact change where I can and have the most to impact in.、Um, and by that I mean,、um, so when people think about Kaya, is usually the scale, and they really want the scale. And since we give back into the community.、Um, We're able to control a little more on the events that we sponsor. So that means that we can say, if you want us to sponsor, you should pay attention to who your judges are and who's on your panels. So part of our policy is actually not sponsoring any events that have all men on panels or all men、uh, as judges in the latte art throwdown. And that seems really small,、um, but when you're A new barista just going to your first throwdown, and you see the MC, and all three judges are men. It's really、uh, what's another word for depressing? Like, <laughs> it's sad.、Um, it's a barrier.、Um, it's a visual barrier, and it means that that community or whoever organized it didn't really think that women or non-binary people were important enough to judge or MC. Or organize,、um, and then the other program that was started、uh, just two months ago is giving back to baristas who are competing. 
and I can talk more about that later. Speaking next is Isabella Pasquale. Hi, everyone. Um, well, my background is kind of complex. I'm the director of sustainability and impact for Dateja Coffee, a coffee producer in Brazil, a farm, but also for a foundation called Educar Foundation. Both of them are almost 30 years old, but I joined them in 2003. They are both a family business. And why am I saying this? Because it are the family values that I learned from the foundation that was the base to develop Dateja Coffee Farm, meaning that Dateja was born as a project to be able to produce large volume of specialty coffee under social and, and environment uh, practice in Brazil. And uh, in order to make this dream happen, we based on our values and principles that we learned from our foundation and from our parent company, which was a tire, retailer tire business in Brazil that back in the 60s was one of the first companies to have a um, bathroom for women and also allow women to dress in pants. <laughs> so fast forwarding to Dateja, Dateja uh, has many practices that we never thought about including because we always thought that that was the normal thing to do. So hire women, hire uh, people of color, pay the same amount of money, take care of children, of employees, all that comes from our background and we just included it in the business. So the question was, why not do that? Why, uh, some companies ask, why do you do that? And we say, why not? Because that really helps us make a better coffee and make a better coffee for a better planet. So we have, for example, 12% of our truck drivers are women. We offer uh, psychologic, we help with health. Um, we give wedding gifts for the workers in the farm. And these are little things that represents what we think is the most important value, that is respect. It doesn't matter if uh, it's uh, a woman, if it's a woman, if it's uh, a people of color or a homosexual, it doesn't matter. We value people that are working, that are committed, and are committed to our values. So the, the idea here is try to, to give example that is possible to do uh, a good coffee production and very good values and still make money. However, it took us 20 years to actually be able to do profit sharing. For the first 20 years of our company, we decided to invest the profit into making this project successful. And I think this required a lot of resilience because it's really hard to prove that the model would work. But fortunately, it did. And I'm happy to share this project. So 
more people can replicate that. We're now back with our moderator, Colleen Anunu. Thinking about then the sort of sphere of influence of each of your businesses and the sort of privilege that you have within the, your space um, and with your employees or your, uh, your project partners. Um, you know, I, I would really, I'd really like to know um, from, from your perspective the, the type of influence that you want to have not only in your own uh, communities, but you want to have in the broader coffee industry and some of the, some of the barriers um, and, and challenges that you face as you are trying to engage with large organizations um, to help them change their sourcing practices or, or invest in certain programs or um, are dug to help placement for certain individuals that you think you know, are ready to move on to a new business and, and trying to find placement for them and coming up to, to struggles there with other businesses. Um, you know, same down the line, I would really love to hear uh, how you engage in those difficult conversations and lead with your values that way. Next to speak is Doug Hewitt of 1951 Coffee. Um, I would say for, for us, um, very often when we are approaching other coffee businesses in, in, in our area, we, we very often approach it from first kind of talking about who we are and, and, and what we do. Um, and I think that anyone running uh, a business, especially when we work largely with smaller independent cafes, you know, everyone looking for the employees that they hire, they're looking for, for people that they can bring in that will be solid employees, they're looking for people who will stay for a while, um, and they're also looking to, to cut out as much risk as, as possible. And I think that's just inherent in someone who really cares about their business, they're trying to make sure that they succeed. Um, and I think very often when we are approaching and talking about what we do, um, it is very helpful for us that we, that we have a cafe where people who came to the U.S. as refugees are, are working. And it allows us the opportunity for us to say, you know, come and visit our cafe, see what we're doing, see how we're doing it, and actually learn from our baristas how they're working with each other, how they're navigating their cultural differences, and allowing that to be an opportunity for people to come in and, and see a model where inclusion has moved beyond just putting someone in a space to say, okay, you're now a part of, of this, we've, we've hired someone who's different from the rest of our staff, but where it's full-on participation um, in the operations of the company and the leading of the company um, so that people can get a vision for, okay, this is not something that I have to be afraid of. This is something that actually can create opportunity um, for my company to grow beyond what it is today. Um, so that's how we kind of initially approach it. Okay. Coming up next is Isabella Pascual of Daterra Farms. The way we chose, because I think it's, at the end it's a matter of what you choose to do, uh, in the perspective of clients, um, we have a very, very good relationship with our clients because we've been trying and we try to develop a relationship that goes beyond price point. So I'm very happy to say that we have clients for more than 15 years, 12 years. And, uh, and back then, when we started opening the commercial area of Daterra, we chose only to find clients that would believe in sustainability. We would only choose clients that either had a certification or that were looking for a high-quality coffee. So we believe that by doing this, we extend that to that market. Um, but looking uh, in, internally, 
we live in Brazil, and we are a medium to large farm, but we belong to a country that has 287,000 smallholders producers, and uh, all of them represents 40% of the coffee producing in Brazil. And the situation that they live in are very, very different to the situation I live, very similar to a lot of places in Africa, in Central America, and sometimes they are kind of hidden or forgotten because we are seen as a big country. So we challenge ourselves on how we could help the small producers. And we could buy from them and resell, but we chose to do something different that is in our essence, that is research and science. So we have um, a research very focused on microbiology of the soil that we hope that will help us to understand and to share this knowledge on how the land can still be productive so that in 2050 we will be able to be producing coffee, not only us, but everybody. And we also uh, research about moisture measurement, so the, the connection between the producer and the buyer when they are discussing about moisture, moisture of the bean, it's well parametized. So this is how we chose to extend our length for, from our country to our clients, pushing the inclusion of smallholder producers as well as our clients to fulfill the whole supply chain. Up next is Jen Chen, marketing for Akaya Scales. Um, so I've been with Akaya for over three years and I've watched it grow um, from a little past Kickstarter stage to what it is now. And I think for anyone who's launching a business in the specialty coffee industry, connecting with the professionals inside um, is really strong. That doesn't mean just listening to opinions, um, but it also means supporting organizations and um, people. Um, and the product sponsorship program that I mentioned earlier, uh, I launched it two months ago, and it's global. Um, and it's from three years of observing conversations around gender on the competition stage. And um, people have lectured about this, written articles, and it's all about um, there's bias on the judging table, the, um, maybe there's some bias in the competition um, rules themselves. Uh, there could be other barriers in place. Um, so I can't really help much of that because I'm not a competitor. Uh, I'm also not a judge. Um, but what I can help is in the products that people use. Um, and since people already email asking for support um, pretty much every day, um, I thought having a sponsorship program where it will break down barriers for those people would help. Um, so the sponsorship program is free product uh, in exchange um, for promotion, basically. Um, however, there are limits. Uh, you have to be one of one or more of several criteria, um, and that could be you're a woman, um, you're queer, you're ethnic minority, a refugee, a veteran, um, or disabled. Um, oh, also, uh, you're a first-time competitor, um, or your business isn't supporting you financially. 
So that covers a lot of ground, um, and that's a lot of barriers for competitors. Um, and uh, I'm really excited to say that just in two months, um, we're supporting 20 competitors around the world, and that's 13 countries. Um, so that's really exciting because it means it's going out to a lot of different people, people who could use this, um, and the uh, criteria doesn't mean that they need to win. I think that's something that sometimes gets lost in marketing um, because in marketing you think, oh, I want to support the winner uh, because they're going to talk about it all the time. But like all these people who win, they win because they have a whole team behind them um, or they get support from their companies or all that. Um, so if you can break down the barriers of um, maybe donating a little cash from your company or um, supporting products or even just, uh, let's see, supporting a hotel stay for one person. It, it doesn't matter, it's small. Um, and this kind of support builds up over the years and people notice it gives back to your company and it's a form of marketing, um, but really it's goodwill back into the community. Up next, Kimberly Eason. Partnership for Gender Equity. If we look at uh, gender equity in coffee producing countries and communities, but all the way up and down the supply chain, and we're really able to, to solve it, to um, really elevate the issue so that we can create better outcomes across the board for the sector, I think you know, really the sphere of influence for this work is, is the whole sector and, and all of us. I mean, gender is not only about, about women, uh, females, it is about all of us in this room, it's about everyone in every community that, that we work with. And I think we, as the, the global coffee sector, we have huge aspirations and, and huge opportunities, not just to make uh, the industry better for ourselves and our businesses and the people that we work with along our supply chain, but also set an example for other supply chains as well. Um, and uh, yeah, just, just that we can really be a, a leader in this issue. We're back with our moderator, Colleen Anunu. So, um, you know, everyone here is working sort of across international boundaries a little bit, right? And everyone's working with different languages, um, different cultures, different, um, you know, on a more global scale, I guess, even if it's on sort of a local community level too. Um, I, I would like to know how these conversations around uh, that, that you see happening in the United States around mar marginalization, how these translate um, and how you have conversations with, with people from different backgrounds that, that, don't, that don't engage in the same sort of nuanced style of conversation as we do and, um, and, and also what you would say to somebody that, that doesn't believe, um, that doesn't value uh, the work that you're doing uh, at the same time. So that's kind of two questions in one, but um, I say choose your own adventure. Kimberly Eason again. I, I mean, I think, that, I think the key is really listening to where the other person is coming from. So first going in and trying to understand what are their concerns. So if you're talking to somebody in a particular position at a business, what are the things that they're trying to achieve and be able to then... Um, respond to that in a way that brings in your own experience and also the voice of those people maybe that aren't in the room with you, but um, that can actually then translate into uh, how the other person views, views the issue. Doug Hewitt, coming up. I think for, for 
for us, very often when we when we talk with employers or we're talking with others, um, you know, we we end up very often talking about just making the the cafe or the coffee company uh, a more open space for for everyone, not even specifically for for refugees, but finding a way to get to the core of what must make your company your company, um, while at the same time looking at those areas where you can broaden. The, maybe the, the, the rules or the ideals of your company to include people that, that have barriers that may not fit into the mold that you've set. Um, and so kind of like whittling that down to where you have your essentials, but then you also have areas where you create a flexibility to bring people in and allow people to be a part of your company and feel like they belong. Okay. Next to speak, Jen Chen. Uh, so this is a huge challenge for me because um, it's part of my job to communicate across uh, language and cultural boundaries, um, and you can probably tell from some of the language that's used on this on social media, um, it's a lot more simple. Uh, the words are written in a way um, that non-native non English speakers can understand it, um, and the, sh the sentences are shorter. Um, and so it's also the way that I wrote um, the product sponsorship policy and um, the general policies that we have, because I know that other um, languages don't directly translate some of the words that we use, um, even just the words that Colleen had used uh, earlier in the intro, um, that doesn't work in other countries. Um, and that's actually why I was very uh, explicit in some of my criteria uh, and why um, I have to keep amending what I say because it's, it's challenging um, and it's a continual work. And in general, I think having any sort of diversity or inclusion policy, um, that kind of work isn't like a one and done kind of thing. You don't just write the policy and you're done. Um, it's, it's continual work. Like, do you have only white hands making coffee and black hands picking coffee? Um, maybe you should change that up. Is that something in your power to change? And if it is, think about changing that. Uh, so it's just small, small things um, that you can do. And if it's in your power, I would encourage you to change it. Last but not least, Isabella Pascual. Um, I think it, it follows to understand what prevents other people into not doing something. And I think listening to their background and to their arguments would help a lot to find the right puzzle to unlock the system. But also, thinking about the business, it's a matter of choice and purpose, as much as it looks very normal now, these terms, purpose. But it's, it's a choice you make when you are starting a business. Am I going to be able to uh, think more in a collective way or in a personal way. I'll be able to um, not to have profit for a certain time, uh, certain amount of time into making a really sustainable farm. Am I able to do that? What I'm going to do with that? So I guess it's a matter of choice and purpose. Mm -hmm. And in to convince other people is the first thing is to understand what would be preventing them not to be doing this. But above all, it shows there is a respect to understand the ecosystem too. Thank you. 
That was Colleen Anunu, Doug Hewitt, Isabella Pascal Becker, Kimberly Eason, and Jen Chen at RICO Symposium this past April. Remember to check out our show notes to find a link to the YouTube video of this talk and a link to the speaker bios on the RICO website. This has been an SCA podcast brought to you by the members of the Specialty Coffee Association and supported by Toddy. I'm Peter Giuliano with Colleen Anunu. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll talk to you next time.